I'm going to be speaking from Psalm 16 tonight. Uh, If you want to go ahead and flip over there, I'm going to cover some verses where I don't ask you to look them up. You can write them down for uh, reference if you want and look at them later. There will be some where I ask you to turn with me too, so, so you can be prepared for that. In Psalm 16, we have a, uh, a psalm here written by David. And um, I've been trying to incorporate the psalms into my studies more. I've been trying to pray in the psalms a little more and, I don't know, trying to take some growing sanctification steps, if you will. And um, I told Jackie, I said, next time I speak, I'm going to speak on God's goodness. I just feel the need to, to do that. <coughs> And I ended up here in Psalm 16, and it ended up being a whole lot more than I expected. There's 11 verses here that I intend to unpack. But uh, when you think about David, David's life story is a story of rags to riches from beginning to end. Shepherd boy becomes king. Uh, His life is filled with, it would probably be a PG-13 movie at, at a minimum, but it's, it's filled with heroism, it's filled with adultery, it's filled with shame, it's, it's full of fame, it's got murder, wealth, power. But it's got, uh, his life is, is, he's a man after God's own heart. And he loves the Lord, he is faithful to God. And a lot of this is expressed in this Psalm 16. And until I... Until I started looking for that psalm and came to this one, I know I've read it a number of times, but it was not familiar at all. So, so this has been a learning for me going through this. Now, we've all heard the story of, of David in many ways, shapes, and form. And, and we've got the story of Goliath, and it's, a, it's an interesting story to think about. It's an interesting story to study. Uh, David was basically sent to the front lines of the battle to bring provisions And Goliath is out there taunting the armies. And all the Israelites, the the armies are scared. But Goliath is basically saying, if one man will come out and fight me, whoever wins, the war is over. All you have to do is come out and defeat me. And David, this kid, teenager, looks at the Israelite army and looks at Goliath and says, why haven't y'all taken him out yet? Why is he still here? And this is paraphrase, but this is what's happening. And they're all in fear. And he ends up going to Saul. And, and Saul, he has Saul. This is the king, right? King Saul? He has Saul. Why haven't you taken him out? Why is he still here? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine talking about my God? And Saul's like, well, what are we going to do? Who's going to go up and, well, I will. And it's pretty interesting. Saul tries to put his armor on David, and it's too big and clunky, and he, I can only imagine he could barely lift the sword and that kind of thing. And he finally says, I don't need all this. I've got God. And he goes down to the creek, and he picks up uh, a handful of stones to put in his slingshot. And he goes marching out there to to Goliath. And Goliath's like, is this the best you've got? Send your kid out to fight your fight for you. 
and he whirls that slingshot around and he hits him in the forehead with one of those perfect round stones that he had picked out of the creek and it drops Goliath. And David goes over and takes Goliath's sword and cuts his head off. He became a hero at that point. But he was already a hero. The Bible teaches us that David, as a shepherd boy, in protecting the flock when lions and bears would come into that flock, he would hunt that lion or that bear down and kill that lion or bear, even to the point of taking the lamb out of the mouth of the lion. So David was not uneducated when he went up against Goliath. He knew what he was doing. I can only imagine that he had used that same tactic a number of times against bears, lions, whatever it was that was invading the flock. So, so this story of David is familiar to us. And one would assume that David is a fearless man. Teenager. I'll take him out. I care how big he is, I'll take that out. He's fearless. Or was he? As we read through the Psalm 16, David once again has found himself in some perilous situation, in my opinion. We don't know exactly what he was facing at this point when he wrote this psalm. But as we read through it, David is seeing these overwhelming odds and he's preparing to go boldly forward and is seeking God's protection. This psalm is a song of confident trust in God. He was able to live his life to the fullest because he's secure with living hope beyond the grave. And we'll see all this in these verses. So as has been proven over and over again, David's trust is anchored in God. And one thing I found interesting, and some of you all, it may say, if you look right under where it says Psalm 16, there's a word there, M-I-K-H-T-A-M. Y'all see that? I don't know how that's pronounced, something, miktum. And we don't know with certainty what that means. We, we're, we, we don't have common knowledge of what that means. I was talking with, with Josh before the Sunday school class last Sunday, and he had mentioned that there are those that think that this name refers to a psalm that was sung to a melody or a rhythm that was erratic or hard to play. Correct me where I'm wrong. But, and that makes about as much sense as anything I've seen about it. There's some different opinions out there. But I don't find that of a high importance. What I do find of a high importance is that this, this chapter is divided up into three different sections. They're subsets, if you will. Verses 1 through 4 represents David's testimony of God. Verses 5 through 8 are David's devotion to God. And verses 9 through 11 are David's assurity in God. So as we read through that, I'll read these again before, before I get into the, the actual teaching. And you can write these down if you want, but be thinking about that as we go through these verses. Testimony, devotion, and surety, or assurance. So at this point, if you will, let's stand for the reading of uh, God's infallible word. Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> And it reads, 
Keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. And I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who who have battered or bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance in my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. We're thankful for for God's word. Let us pray. Father, it is with much honor and favor for you that we come before you this evening. And as we have have just heard, you, you are a place of refuge. You are the source of goodness. And you are the Holy One. Help us to place our faith and trust in you, much like David does in this psalm and others. And and please give us the understanding of your word. Help us to leave here this evening knowing that you are our source of all that is good, all that is meaningful, and Lord, that you are our delight. Father, I pray you'll bless each family that is represented here tonight, and I pray that through them and through this church, your word will go forth. Lord, we love you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, and all God's children said, Amen. So, verse 1 in Psalm 16, it starts out with the words, keep me. Your versions may have a little different terminology there. But when we think about David saying, keep me, O God, for I take refuge in you. When he says, keep me, he is saying, preserve me, hold me, keep me, don't ever, ever let me go. You leave it up to me and I'll wander astray for sure. Keep me. He's asking God to hold on to him. And I think we all should do that. He's reaching out for security that only God can can provide. Um, His trust is solely in God. He, He knows that God alone is what he needs. David knows uh, that without God's protection, any battle that he goes to fight is already lost. And David has used this language many times before, and I'm going to go through a couple of three psalms here. Uh, You can write them down. You don't have to turn to them. I'll read them off. But David has used this language before. In Psalm 7, verse 1, he writes, O Yahweh, my God, in you I have taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. In Psalm 17, 8, David once again writes, Keep me as the apple of the eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. 
In Psalm 61, he even cries out. He says, hear my cry of lamentation, O Lord. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth, I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength before my enemies. Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. So there's David over and over again crying out to God for his protection, for his, for his bidding. There's little doubt why David rushes to God for refuge in times of trial. We, we talked about David as a, a young boy, a young shepherd boy, and the, the killing of the lions and the bears as they went into the flock, slaying of Goliath. We talked about that. But even before that, there's a story here where that Samuel comes to Jesse, David's dad, and he's looking to anoint what will be the next king of Israel. And he goes through all of Jesse's sons, one at a time. And I'm assuming they started at the oldest and they went down to the youngest. And they went through what Samuel thought was all of them. And he said, is this all of them? He said, well, I've got one more son who's out in the field with the sheep. And he said, well, we've got to see him because this is not it. These are not the ones I'm looking for. <clears throat> so he sends for David and David comes in and immediately Samuel knows that this is the one. And he anoints David at that point. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, the scripture describes that once he was anointed, and here are the words, the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David from that day forward. Now, we would be tempted to read through that scripture and start, stop at David and just say the spirit of Yahweh came mightily upon David. And that would be true. But we need to understand this last part where it says, from that day forward. That means forever. As long as you live. That spirit of Yahweh came upon him mightily, and it stayed on him from that day forward as a kid. But yet David had his times of fear. He was afraid of Saul. He became Saul's uh, armor bearer. He played the harp and sang for Saul, I can only imagine that there's some of these psalms that he probably wrote and sung during that tenure. But Saul became jealous of David. At one point, the crowds were crying out, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his ten thousands. And I think Saul became jealous of that because people were showing favor toward David. And Saul had to have already heard that David was the next anointed king and he probably feared for his position and for his livelihood. He saw David as a threat. So beginning in 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 through 14, Saul personally tries to kill David. In chapter 19, 1 through 7, Saul orders David to be murdered. And Jonathan intervenes, and I think Saul actually felt a little guilt at that point for doing this to David and decided not to have him go kill him. And then immediately after that, in verses 8 through 10, he attempts to kill David again himself. And there were days in between there, but this is how the verses read. And in chapter 19, 11 through 24, Saul continues his murderous attempts against David. Why didn't he succeed? Because he had God's protection. He couldn't have killed David no matter how much he wanted to if God was protecting him. 
David reveres Yahweh's goodness in his psalms regularly. And, and we could spend all night here reading through them and finding more and more examples of it. But I really found in, in the book of Nahum, it's probably the most clear. In chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Yahweh is good, period. That's the end of the story as far as good is concerned. He goes on to say that he's a strong defense in the day of distress. And I think that has been proven in, in just in these stories of David that we've been talking through. And David goes on to declare Yahweh's goodness in verse 2. He says, Oh, my soul, you have said to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good without you. <clears throat> when David says that his soul cries out to Yahweh, he is declaring that to the deepest fathoms of his spirit, of his soul, that Yahweh is his Lord. Those deep recesses in your heart where that, that deepest sin might be trying to hide, Yahweh was Lord there too. David's declaration comes with the declaration, and I'm, I'm going to try, and I saw uh, full transparency. I saw John Piper do a little bit on this, this particular chapter, and he did something that sounded like, he says, Yahweh is Lord, and Yahweh is good. Yahweh is Lord, and Yahweh is my treasure. Yahweh is Lord, and he is my delight. And he went on with a number of these. And it just really brought what David was doing here when he says, You are my Lord, and I have no good without you. This is exactly what David is doing. Yahweh is the source of everything that is good in David's life. Everything that he has. Apart from God, he has nothing good. God was David's only good thing. In Psalm 73, 25, the psalmist Asaph was of the same mindset as David many times, if you look through the, the psalms. He says, who have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing in earth. If they're singing this to God, shouldn't we be doing that? Shouldn't we follow their cue here? How many times I have failed to give God credit for the great works he has done in my life? Have I truly rejoiced to him for that? Those are things I've got to work on. And that's why I'm looking in the Psalms. That's why I'm doing some of these studies. You can do the New Testament version here. James in chapter 1 verse 17, he says, Every good thing given and every perfect thing is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation and no shifting shadow. That's the New Testament version of what the psalmist Asaph and what David is saying here. Most of us are pretty familiar with the story of Joseph. In the book of Genesis, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. And through a series of prophetic events, he was interpreting dreams and he ends up being the second in command of all of Egypt. The famine starts to come into the land and Joseph starts hoarding all the grain that he can so that he'll have food to feed the people during the famine. His brothers are in, his dad are impacted by the famine and they come to Egypt seeking help. What are we going to do for food? And they end up standing before the brother they sold into slavery whom they assume was dead. At first, they didn't know who he was. 
But when they stood before his brother in, in chapter 50 of Genesis, verse 20, <clears throat> Joseph says to him, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to do what has happened on this day. And he doesn't go on to say to prove you bozos wrong because you sold me into slavery. He says to keep many people alive. He's able to recognize that it's not just them. It's everyone in the nation of Egypt. Many of you all have likely seen struggles in life that where you have reached out to God and asked that litany of why questions. Why is this happening? Why on earth is my family enduring whatever? And if we had a little bit of patience, we would see God go to work at some point and that thing be turned around to something good. Something much better than you even wanted when it all started. And God turned it into something good. Even in our lives today, we see that happen. William Tyndale stated, God's goodness is the root of all goodness and our goodness, if we have any springs from God's goodness, from his goodness. David continues his common comments on God's goodness among men here on earth in verse 3. But then he offers some contrast in verse 4. It reads, as for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains or the sorrows, some of your all's translations may say sorrows here. The sorrows of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lip. lips. Do you see the contrast between verses 3 and 4? Verses 3 is talking about believers who love the Lord, even to the point that David is delighting in the saints because their delight is found in God. And then he immediately goes into verse 4 where he's talking about those who are following false gods. These, cho these, these ones that he's delighting in in verse 3, these are the glorious ones. These are the chosen ones of God. And it, it appears that David exhibits desire to be among these fellow believers. In Proverbs 27, 17, we have a well-known verse that says, Iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Being in fellowship of other Christians leads to a lot of good things. Anytime you're before the preaching or teaching, or even just simple conversation among believers, it encourages joy, it encourages us, it, it gives us a keener mindset and it improves our character to be of a better character. Anytime we're amongst fellow believers, there's accountability to be had there. There are people there who can help hold you accountable. You can hold yourself accountable more easily. And quite honestly, when you're among believers, you've got less idle time to be tempted. Let's be real. In verse 4, David is vowing to avoid those temptations. The temptations of other gods, he recognizes that the sorrows of the followers of the other gods will be multiplied as they futilely worship false gods. And I can only imagine this statue of wood or clay or whatever it is, maybe it's of gold, and people are bowing down and worshiping something that isn't even living. 
And we look at that and we think how futile. What a waste of time. What a, what a waste of... And that's still going on today in some parts of the world. It's still happening. But in our world that we live in right now, there's a lot of other false gods out there. And those gods are saying, hey, I've got delights too. I've got joys. I've got treasures. Come on over here and taste of what I've got. Maybe I have wealth or fame. Maybe it's a, a drug. Maybe it's some kind of whatever to tempt you to. Maybe it's some kind of temptation of a sexual nature. Come on over here and try me. I'm good. You'll enjoy me. And David is very clear in his reaction to this. He's committed to not having their names on his lips. He will not even pour out their drink offering of blood. I'm not even going to pick that cup up and dump it on the ground. It's not worth my time. And I'll not have their names on my lips. Turn with me, if you will, to Joshua chapter 23. We're going to jump in about verse 6. Because he's got some similar comments to say here. Joshua 23, verse 6, and I'm going to read verse 7. It says, Be very strong then to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, so that you may not turn aside. You may not turn aside from it to the right hand or to the left, so that you will not go along with these nations, these which remain among you, and you will not mention the name of their gods, and you will not make anyone swear by them, and you will not serve them, and by all means you will not bow down to them. Oh, how I hope that we can live up to this standard in this day and time with all the temptations that are out there for us and for our children and for our grandchildren. And David now returns to praising Yahweh for his provision in verse 5. And this starts our second subset, the subset of David's devotion. In verse 5 in chapter 16 of the, of the Psalms, it reads, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. And where I thought this was probably going to be one of the harder verses for me, I really, it just came. Because when we think of an inheritance, we're thinking about some loved one who passes away and they leave some inheritance to the children or the wife or whomever it may be. But I don't think that's what David has in mind here. Because David's a king. What kind of inheritance is going to be left to him in a worldly sense? It's likely not what he has in mind. So what does the scripture say about this inheritance? And I ended up in Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 9 and it says, Therefore Levi does not have a portion or inheritance with his brothers. Yahweh is his inheritance. Just as Yahweh your God spoke to him. Romans 8, verses 16 and 17 gives you a New Testament version of this. It says, uh, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
And we tend to stop there and don't read the last half of this verse, but the next word is if. And we use this word every day. And here's another one. We don't know what it means most of the time. We don't think about what it means. We just properly use it and we go on about saying whatever we're saying. But the word if means there's a condition here. If the sky is cloudy, it may rain. The woods may burn down if you smoke going up the trail while the leaves are dry. And you could come up with a, a million examples of if. So I stopped there at Christ. We got another word, if. We'll back up a little bit. We are children of God, and if children also heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may be glorified in him. Here's that word suffer again. It's in the book of Peter, when one of my favorite verses, it talks about living your life in such a way that people ask you, what is it within you that gives you such hope? And the verses before that was all about the suffering of the Christian people. And the message is, is even though you're suffering, you should live this way. People should be asking you this question. And here we have Paul saying, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, with Jesus. Caught me a little off guard, to be honest with you. I've read that many times. I never heard it the way I did this week. Every believer has been made to be an heir of God our Father. We will inherit eternal salvation, Titus 3.7. We will inherit God himself. Revelations 21.3. I put an S on that, didn't I? Sorry. We will inherit glory. Romans 5.2. And here, here's one. We will inherit everything in the universe. Hebrews 1.2. This inheritance, which is imperishable, it's undefiled, it will not fade away, and it is, it is reserved in heaven for you. God is good. David talks about his cup. And if you will, turn just a few pages over to the 23rd Psalm. Because it says, in, Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance. And the way it's written, it also says, Yahweh is the portion of my cup. But in the 23rd Psalm, we have, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in the green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. When he talks about the cup in verse 16, he's talking about this cup that overflows. This cup that overflows is the provisions that God is providing to him. The provisions of life. I have everything I need and then all this that is spilled out on the ground as well. My cup overflows. This is the same cup in verse 16. And then he, he goes on to talk about supporting my lot. And he's not talking about that empty piece of land down the street that you'd wish somebody would buy and do something with. 
the lot that we're talking about here, it has to do with uh, it has to do with choices to be made, opportunities to take advantage of, chances to be taken. Webster's Dictionary talks about it being an object used in deciding a matter of chance. A number of these items being placed in a container and then drawn or casted out one at a time randomly. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. I'm going to jump in at verse 20. And we talked about this in the Sunday school class. Acts chapter 1, verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms. Here we are. Acts is referring to the book of Psalms. Let his resident be made desolate. Let no one dwell in it. And let another man take his office. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time, and he's talking about the apostles, that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And they put forward two men. One was Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and was Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place of this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. That's what a lot is. There's an Old Testament that they've done these things. We think about the crucifixion of Christ, and wasn't it the Roman soldiers at his feet who cast lots to see who got his garments? Have you ever asked yourself, why would they want them? Why would there be such an argument over them that they had to cast lots? That's what this lot means. In this verse, we plainly see David's dependence upon Yahweh's provision and the expected goodness of his provision. David continues this thought in verses 6 through 8. 6 through 8 reads, The lines have fallen to me in beautiful places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. 6 through 8. The lines in verse 6, and I'm talking about the word lines, the lines have fallen to me have a couple of different definitions when you get to looking at how this could be used and you end up at the same place no matter which one one of them you use it's kind of strange but lines are, are referred to in, in some of the writings as like boundary lines, property lines state lines David being a king has these right? he has his kingdom and there are lines drawn this is my kingdom, this is it And David would be saying, if he used it in this way, that all the lands that God had given me are in pleasant places. Pleasant meaning desirable, interesting, glad to possess them. And the other word that we use in lines refers to usages in the Old Testament metaphors that describe the blessings of God. And this is a little different definition. 
But the ultimate end is that David is thankful for all that Yahweh has given him. And he supports this in the last part of verse 6 when he states, Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. What is his inheritance? God. God is beautiful to him. The counsel of Yahweh is also here. You find that in verse 7. And this is something David has sought out throughout the Psalms. He's lived his life in faith with Yahweh. Yes, he was a, a fallen man. He had committed sins. But he hadn't lost faith. He knows Yahweh's counsel is right and true. Many battles he has won by being obedient to Yahweh. He knows that Yahweh will never lead him astray, but always to good. Romans 11 talks about the depth of the riches and the wisdom of knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor or who has first given to him that he might, it might be repaid to him. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. To him be the glory forever. David goes on in uh, verse 8, or uh, the last part of verse 7, to talk about night. It reads, Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. And I struggled with this one a little bit. But when we think of night, we're thinking as it's, it's something that our children are afraid of. But I really feel like there's a necessary amount of fear in all of us of the dark. You can't see clearly. Your imagination runs amok. You see stuff that's not there. Your peace becomes disturbed over some period of time in the dark. But David fears not as the counsel of Yahweh is comforting him. And verse 8 holds some interesting terminology. David sets Yahweh continually before him. And if you put Yahweh continually before me, I can see nothing but Yahweh. I can hear nothing but Yahweh. I can do nothing but what God, Yahweh allows, what God lets come through. Yahweh before me, you only hear his counsel. Your delight is right in front of you. Who does not want their delight to be right in front of them constantly forever? He claims that Yahweh is at his right hand. And because of this, he's not going to be shaken. The right hand is a place of high prominence. Christ himself currently sits at the right hand of the Father. The right hand denotes a close relationship. And what one says, the other one fully supports. If you have God right in front of you, and you got God right here, Yahweh, Yahweh, how are you going to be shaken? My buddy. God is right here. He's at your right hand. David closes verse 8 stating that he will not be shaken and now we know why. Verses 9 and 10. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. 
My flesh also will dwell securely, for you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to corruption. The word therefore, starting verse 9, connects verses 6 through 8 to this. It says, because of these things that you just read, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh also will dwell securely. That word therefore is very important. It gives reason. The reason this is true is because of that. Before we move forward, I want to I back up just a little bit here, and this is by design. But if you go back to verse 7, and you read through verses 9 and 10, you're going to see some words used. My mind, my heart, my glory, my flesh, my soul. When he uses my mind, he's referencing his core of his being. When he goes on to talk about his heart and my glory and my flesh and my soul, he's talking about his whole self. When you put all these together, this is the whole David. His whole body, his whole soul, all of his being, his mind, his spirit has been given to Yahweh in this state. His mind is clear. He is glad. He rejoices. His flesh is secure and his soul is safe from hell. That's what that's saying. Romans 12, 1, and this is kind of like a New Testament version of this. Therefore, I exhort to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service to worship. David was adhering to this in the Old Testament before that was written. We have a word in here, the word forsake in verse 10 familiar word to us in the scripture most notably the words of Christ on the cross when he cries out my God my God why have you forsaken me do we even know what the word forsaken means David prophesied this in Psalm 22 1 another Psalm prophecy these words that God that Christ cried out my God my God why have you forsaken me was prophesied in Psalm 22, 1, hundreds of years before Christ was on the cross. And Matthew 27, 46 records these words of Christ, and this is the fulfillment of that prophecy. The word forsake means to abandon or leave behind. Do not, why have you forsaken me? Why have you left me behind? Why have you turned away from me? So when David states that God will not forsake his soul to Sheol, he recognizes that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8. And Sheol has, has meanings, and, and they're used a little differently. Most commonly, uh, we, we have a place in the depths of the earth where the dead dwell. It refers to a place of death, darkness, and silence in complete contrast to the state of the living. It's a state of the non-living. 1 Samuel 2.6, Yahweh puts to death and he makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Death and Sheol, the way this is written, are supporting each other. It's a comparison there. Making alive and raising up are supporting each other by the way they're written. 
Norman Geisler, Norman Geisler, who I don't necessarily recommend for all things theology, but I think he properly states that this Hebrew word is properly translated in some applications as hell, and it can be used that way. He goes on to say that this refers to the unseen world and often is used to refer to the grave where the body is unseen in its state of corruption and or decay. What joy David is experiencing when he writes this knowing that he's saved. In the last parts of verse 10, David does not even fear the grave as he knows his flesh is secure in a different way from his spirit or his soul. While he knows that decay will creep into his corpse after death, David must revere a coming resurrection in order to have this level of faith. Verse 10 goes on to talk about Jesus. Verse 10 contains some interesting stuff. He references your Holy One, which we must understand is Jesus Christ. David, the lesser David, expresses confidence that Jesus, the greater David, is going to see a resurrection without corruption or decay. What happened with Christ? Died on the cross, buried in the tomb, raised three days later, didn't see decay, right? And it's pretty interesting if you, let's go to Acts chapter 2 again. Because it's these verses, Peter uses... This verse in his sermon at Pentecost. So Acts chapter 2, verse 22. And I'm going to read through uh, somewhere around 28. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, with miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst... Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of lawless men and put him to death. This is Peter. This is the one who denied Christ three times before the crucifixion and suddenly after the crucifixion has got more spine than I will ever have. He's standing before the Jews saying, this Jesus that you killed. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord continually before me because he is at my right hand. For that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. He will not forsake my soul to Hades, nor give your Holy One over to corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. We can go over here and see David right now. We can go over there and we can open that up and he's in there. His body is there, what's left of it. Jesus Christ went to heaven. He went to the Father. He ascended after the resurrection. We can go on into uh, <clears throat> the book of Acts chapter 13. And I'm going to flip over there. Because this is, this is the 
This is the heart of the gospel. 13, verse 35, Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. This same psalm, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised did not see corruption. Therefore let it be known to you, brothers. He's speaking at Antioch. This is the Gentiles. That through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And that in him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified from through the law of Moses. Therefore watch out so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. Look you scoffers and marvel, marvel and perish for I am accomplishing a work in your days. A work which you will never believe though some should recount it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were leaving, the people kept pleading that these words might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. And now when the meeting of the synagogue had broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in the grace of God. And when we come down here to verse 48, it says, And when the Gentiles had heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many had been appointed to eternal life, believed. That verse saved them. That verse pulled them into salvation, into faith. Used over and over again, that same verse. I mean, I didn't even realize that when I started studying this chapter. It's just, it's amazing what you find when you really start digging. So, folks, the gospel message is always the most important thing. The Gentiles believed. No matter what you're facing or who you're facing, the gospel message is the most important thing. There are other things that are worthy of talking about and having relationships with. Make sure you get to the gospel. In closing, David reiterates his love for Yahweh and his expectations of good from Yahweh. In verse 11, he he writes, You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Because Yahweh is at David's right hand, David felt sure that he would one day be at God's right hand. There, David will enjoy eternal pleasure. David will delight forever in that day. Yahweh made known to David the path of life. And David knows that this path will ultimately end up leading him to heaven. He will be in God's presence. Here David knows he will experience an overflowing, undiminishing joy. And my hope that as everyone here this evening can or will experience some of that same joy, knowing where your eternal destination lies. So in summary... God is good. Verse 1, God is good when in need of refuge. Verse 2, God is good as our Lord, and God is good. God is good in providing fellow believers who delight in God. Verse 3. Verse 4, God is good in showing us the negative aspects of false gods. Verse 5, God is good in your inheritance. He is good when considering your cup of provision. He is good when it comes to your lot. Verse 6, God is good in establishing the lines of your life. Verse 7, God is good in his counsel, even the nighttime hours. Verse 8, God is good right in front of you. 
and at your right hand. You will not be shaken in those conditions. God is good in verse 9 in making our hearts glad and our glory rejoice. In verse 10, God is good saving our soul through his Holy One, Jesus Christ. And in verse 11, God is good in showing us the path of life. God is good in his presence as he gives us the fullness of joy. God is good as pleasures forever reside in his right hand. No longer should we look upon God as this stoic figure with his frail hand reaching down to try and assist man to do something. God is good. Let's pray. Holy Father, we recognize that all good things flow from you. Help us, Lord, to always remember this and be able to show our gratitude toward you for all that you've done for us. We pray that your church, Lord, and we pray for your church, and just that you will, you will use it to further your kingdom. I thank you for each person here this evening, Lord, and I pray that something spoken here this evening will, will help them mightily. Holy Father, help us to grow in you through your spirit before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and all God's children said, amen.